invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. I'll begin reading in a few moments from Acts chapter 3. One of the controversies in our state right now is uh, in, related, in relation to the motorcycles is the helmet law. And, uh, you know, you can, ride hel- you can ride a motorcycle anywhere in our state without a helmet uh, other than the confines, the city of Myrtle Beach. If that's news to you and you're riding a motorcycle, that's just a fair warning. Uh, but last night I was coming back from, in fact, heading up towards the mall and back from the mall, and both times I saw blue lights, and they were just pulling over people left and right that weren't wearing their helmet. And I thought, I know some folks want to get a ticket so they can challenge it in court, but others probably are saying, hey, I didn't know, I'm, I'm ignorant of the law. And you've always heard, you know, ignorance is no excuse. But there's also this huge sign <laughs> that says helmets required. You know, you're entering into a zone where helmets are required, and uh that's kind of that whole idea of ignorance of the law. You can't be ignorant because there's a sign. The passage we're going to look at today, uh, Peter declares to these folks, hey, you've been operating, you've been walking in ignorance, and yet you're really without excuse because you've been told. The entire Old Testament pointed to the fact that there is a Messiah, there's a Savior that's coming. So let me begin reading this passage from Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as having been the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel... Why are you amazed at this, and why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return 
so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of our Lord. I want you to see, first of all, the miracle. We see miracles take place during the ministry of Christ, and always those miracles attracted a crowd. In fact, the crowd became thousands of people. When word got out that Jesus was traveling and that he was healing people of every kind of disease, the crowd literally numbered into the thousands. And we see in the first century, you know, Jesus, before he left, said to his disciples, greater things than you've seen me do, you will do because I go to be with the Father. We've seen now in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the disciples, and now this healing uh, event, this miracle that takes place at the temple. So first of all, I want to look at the miracle, and then I want to look at the responses to the miracle, how the man responded, how the people responded, and then how Peter said, here's how you ought to respond. So the miracle. They're on their way. This is Peter and John. Uh, they are two partners in business. We can go back to Luke chapter 5 and see that Peter and James and John were partners in a fishing business in Galilee. And Jesus called them out of that fishing business and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to tell other people about me. They didn't really get that for the next three years, really. They just watched Jesus and his ministry, and now they are taking that ministry upon themselves. So they walk up to the temple. It's about the ninth hour. There were uh, three times of prayer during the day at, at 9 o'clock in the morning at noon, and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is the ninth hour. They kept time beginning at 6 a.m., which was roughly sun up. And so at the ninth hour, 3 o'clock, is the time for the afternoon prayer. It was also the time of the daily offering. So it would be the time when the crowd would be the biggest at the temple. And they encounter a man who is begging alms. In fact, it's interesting that he uses two different words, one for beg, one for ask. And I want to explain the difference in that. Uh, first, he's begging. Now, he did this every day. The, the sense of the words that we hear from, the fact his friends carried him every day, he was being carried, meant that they did this every single day. That had been the pattern of this man's life, I guess, since he had become old enough to need to take care of himself financially. And so he would go to the temple, and he placed himself, or they placed him, right at a gate called Beautiful. Now, they didn't call it, you know, it wasn't just because it was a pretty gate. It literally became the name of a gate. The city of Jerusalem has gates, and we know that those are named. There's the eastern gate and the western gate and all these other gates. Inside the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem, you would walk not very far until you got to the entrance of the temple, and that is where this main entrance was called the Gate Beautiful or the Beautiful Gate. In fact, historians, if you read historians, not necessarily biblical accounts, but just accounts of that day from historians like Josephus tell us that this gate was made of Corinthian brass, and it was so large and so heavy, it took 20 men just to close it at the end of the day. So that's the, the place where this man gathered to beg alms. In fact, it was probably a place where many people gathered to beg one reason they, got, they, would, they would be at this place to beg is you were already on your way to the temple and an offering would be given. So you're already in a giving mood. But also in a Jewish culture, to give was a sign of religious piety. We, we see that even when we see the woman who gave the two widows mites. You know, Jesus stood back and watched people throwing money into the treasury. And it's almost like they were kind of tipping God on the way in. And then this woman gave everything she had. Well... That's a similar situation that we deal with here. This man has positioned himself or been positioned there by his friends to beg alms. The word beg 
means to ask of someone higher in, in rank than you. So this guy recognized, you know, he probably didn't even look at the people. He just probably said alms for the poor. You know, this guy was crippled. He couldn't walk, and he hoped to play on their mercy. And so he begged alms at this gate. But when he saw Peter and John coming, a different word is used. He began asking them. The word that's used there is where you would ask more of somebody on your own level or somebody that you're familiar with. That's interesting to me. Did it mean that this guy sized them up and realized, you know what, they don't look like anybody special, so maybe they'll give me something. They're kind of on my level. Or the fact that they were familiar, maybe that he knew these two men. He had seen them before. He had been there when they had taught back in, Peter taught in Acts chapter 2, same place, and he thought, wait a minute, these are the people that all the talk's about now. And so he begins asking them to receive a, a gift from them. And then something very interesting happens. Peter and John give their attention to this man. It says, literally, they fixed their gaze on him. I don't think this man was used to that. I think he was used to begging alms. And a lot of times beggars don't make eye contact with the people they're begging from. They just kind of hope that you pick up on their need and will kind of throw something into a cup for them and to take care of their daily needs. And yet Peter and John fixed their gaze and then said this, Hey, look at us. So this man who wasn't initially looking at him, just begging and now asking, fixed his gaze on them and looked up. And it says that he was expecting to receive something from them. He wasn't expecting to receive what he would ultimately receive. He expected to receive money from them. So he's fixed his gaze on them. And I think this was unusual for this guy, to have somebody literally give him the time of day, so to speak. He was used to people not even breaking stride as they walked by to throw something in his cup. And these two men stopped take time to look at him, and then said, hey, look at us. And he's expecting to receive something. I think at this point he's hopeful. And yet Peter says, silver and gold, we don't have any. What's Peter saying? Literally, I don't have a nickel to my name. But what I do have, I give you. Now, I don't know what the guy's thinking was at this point, because what he wanted was money. What he needed was daily bread. He needed food and he needed money to buy the food. And so when somebody says, hey, look at me, I don't have what you're asking for, but what I do have, I give you. I don't know what's going through his mind at this point, but here's what Peter says. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. (laughs) And it says that Peter didn't just say it. He literally reached out his hand and grabbed this guy by the arm and pulled him to his feet. In fact, the word that he used for seized his arm is a word literally means to attach to. In fact, in in official terms, it would be to make an arrest. If a police officer was arresting somebody, they'd use this word, the same word to seize. Or in hunting terms, it would be to capture. So this wasn't just Peter extending his hand out saying, okay, stand up. Peter said, no, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And he grabs him and pulls him to his feet. And what happens? It says, the man walked. In fact, what happened after that, I would say, had never happened in this man's life. Three things that I see happen after that, I don't think this man had ever experienced before. Number one, he walked. The word means to tread all around as if testing your ability. So it's not just that he started walking. And and keep this in mind, this man had never walked. And yet now he's a grown man. And the immediacy, the instantaneousness of the cure, the, this healing, he didn't have to be taught to walk. He didn't test his legs. He just started walking with perfect balance. Second thing he did, I'm sure he had never done before, is he leapt. 
Well, folks, if you've never walked and your life consisted of having to be carried from one place to another every day of your life just to hope to get enough money to buy bread for the day, and all of a sudden you can walk, you're not going to yawn over that. You're not going to say, well, that was nice. <laughs> what do I owe you? What does he start doing? He leaps. He's running around jumping in the air. Why? Because he's joyful. And then the third thing he did, I don't know that he had ever done before, it says that he praised God. He acknowledged where this healing had come from, and it said he followed Peter and John into the temple. Peter and John were going into the temple to pray. It was part of their daily routine. They probably did it three times every day. At the morning, the afternoon, and the evening prayer. This man had probably never been in there. Why? Because he couldn't get in there. But now he could go and worship the God who's made him whole. Immediately, his feet, his ankles are restored. Let's look at the response then to the miracle. You know, something has just happened that's out of the ordinary. We read miracle in the New Testament, and sometimes I think we think the pattern in the book of Acts was that there was just a lot of miracles taking place. In fact... There were some miracles taking place. You go back in Acts 2 and you see that one of the signs of the first church was the people were filled with awe and amazement because many signs and wonders were taking place among the apostles. In fact, they were attesting miracles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says that God has given these signs and wonders, these miracles to prove who the true apostles were. But folks, I think the miracles also were enough out of the ordinary that when one happened, a crowd gathered. It wasn't so commonplace. It wasn't something that happened every day so that people looked at it and said, oh, there's another miracle. Just jot that down in your book. No, something happened that gained the attention of the entire crowd. And what did they do? They all ran to the porch of Solomon. The man has entered the temple, leaping, walking, praising God. And then what did the people do? It says they take note of him. I think it was more than that. I think they saw this man and they started putting two and two together and say, wait a minute, isn't that the guy that we see every single day as we come to the temple? Isn't he the guy that kind of gets on your nerves because he's always begging? Isn't he the guy that every now and then I put something into his cup? Isn't that that guy? And yet today he's walking and leaping and praising God. He used to sit. Now he's not just standing, he's walking and leaping and praising God. In fact, the words that are used in the New Testament here says they were filled with wonder and amazement. The two words mean this. One, it means to dumbfound or stupefy. Literally, they are speechless. And then the second word, amazement, means a displacement of the mind, bewilderness. They don't even know what to make of this. They're dumbfounded and literally in their mind, they can't put it all together. Because any way of trying to rationalize it would be, wait a minute, this guy can't walk. And now he's walking. How do you explain that? And it says that he's clinging to Peter and John. I'm sure he's just trying to thank them. He's hugging them. He's saying, you've given me a gift today better than a nickel in my cup. I don't have to beg for bread anymore now. I can go out and plant weed. I can work. I can go fish. And the people, full of amazement, ran. In fact, again, the word full of amazement means utterly astonished. They run to see this incredible 
thing. And then here comes the sermon. This is Peter's second sermon. First one was back in Acts chapter 2. We looked at it last week. Now we see really the, the, the proper response. In fact, it's interesting that this passage will be referenced over in Acts chapter 4. The rulers know that they're healing people, and they get together and say, what are we going to do about these men? We can't deny the fact that a miracle occurred the other day in the temple precinct. Somebody was healed that we all knew shouldn't be able to walk. And they get together, they form a little religious committee, and finally decided, well, we're going to tell them to quit talking. We're going to tell them to quit preaching about it. Well, we'll look at the rest of the story in a later week. But the proper response of this, Peter gets up and says this, men of Israel, and he's addressing the Jewish people because what he's about to tell, tell them will be right in the face of the Israeli people, the Jewish people. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed? Why do you wonder at this? And more than that, why do you get it so wrong? You're looking at Peter and John as if we did this. You're looking at us as if somehow by our power or our piety, in other words, by our might or just by our religiousness, that we've made this man well. Now, i got news for you. And what does he do? He takes them back in their thinking as a Jewish person. Hey, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's speaking to a group of people that just, you know, 50 so days earlier had cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus because they considered him a blasphemer. And yet now they are basically doing the same thing. Peter and John, in their minds, almost blasphemy to say, hey, we didn't heal this guy. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, your God, the God that you claim to be children of, that's who healed this person. And he did it for one reason only. He didn't just do it so this guy can walk, leap, and praise him. He did it to glorify his son. And then here's where the sermon turns. You ever been in a sermon where you're a little uncomfortable? You know, you felt like, I, you know, I've had people tell me, boy, you really stepped on my toes today. I was like, well, I wasn't aiming at your toes. I was aiming at your heart. But anyway, you know, this is where it gets uncomfortable for these people. It's already a little uncomfortable that he's saying, don't look at us. Look at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in some sense, they'd almost say, wait a minute, that's blasphemy. You're calling on the name of our God? But he says this, we did it. So that Jesus Christ will be glorified. When you see the word glory in Scripture, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture taking a huge spotlight and shining it on something. You're rendering it apparent. That's what the, literally the word means, to make it glorious. Render apparent. That's what we do when we glorify Jesus. We take the spotlight off of anything else and put it right on Him. We glorify Him. And that's what Peter's saying. Hey, spotlight might be on me right now because we just heal this guy. Don't, don't leave it there doesn't belong there. It belongs on Jesus. Glorify Him. And He said, He's the one that you delivered. <laughs> He's the one that you disowned in the presence of Pilate. The word deliver means literally to surrender or to yield up. You took Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God, and you handed Him over to the Roman authorities to have Him put to death. That's who was glorified here today by this healing. Not me and John, but it was Jesus Christ. Not only did you deliver him over, you disowned him. You, you, literally, you contradicted, you disavowed this one who claimed to be Christ, the Son of God. 
You said, we don't want to have anything to do with him. You disowned him. In fact, you disowned him when Pilate was ready to release him. Why was he ready to release him? Pilate found no guilt in the man. Pilate did his own investigation. Pilate did his own inquiry between himself and Jesus. He wanted to release him. In fact, if you go back and read the Scripture, his wife came and warned him, don't have anything to do with this person. Wash your hands of this. Let him go. And so Pilate thought, well, how am I going to do that? I'm going to get rid of him without losing face here. So what does he do? He goes and gets a murderer out of prison. He says, here's your choice. I'll hand over to you Jesus, in whom I find no guilt, or I'll hand over a convicted criminal Barabbas, murderer. And what do the people say? Give us Barabbas. Barabbas, Hebrew word that simply means son of a father. And Peter says, you handed over the prince of life. The word prince means originator or author. You handed over the giver of life to release a giver of death. And you did it because you were ignorant. And I don't know how that word strikes you. <laughs> to somebody say, you know, you're ignorant. The word simply means you lack information. You're ignorant either because you haven't accumulated enough information or you're ignorant because you choose to ignore the information that you've been given. Peter says, get it now. I want you to understand this. You have crucified the Christ who was sent by God, the Messiah. But you need to understand something. God raised him up on the third day. Yeah, that's the Jesus I'm talking about. And we're all witnesses to it. It's what it says in the passage. Peter says, we, we all know that happened. He appeared to us. He appeared to more than 500 on one occasion. He was here for 40 days continuing to teach. Yeah, the Jesus you crucified placed in a tomb. He's not in the tomb anymore. The stone's been rolled away so we can get in and find out it's empty. Yes, that Jesus, the one that you disowned on the basis of faith in his name, in his name alone. That's why this man is strengthened and now walks, in fact, enjoys perfect health. Man's not just walking and leaping. He is perfectly healthy. You acted in ignorance. You, you didn't know. When Jesus was dying on the cross, you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. They're acting in ignorance. Now, folks, let me bring that question into 2010, 2,000 years after Peter's sermon and just ask the question, are, are we still continuing to act in ignorance? I thought about this this week as I prepared this message and thought some of the conversations I've had with people. You know, you've heard me say this from this pulpit before. There's some people that are often wrong but never in doubt. Those are my definition of ignorance. People that kind of go through life thinking they got all the facts together and yet they're wrong. You can be sincerely sincere about something and yet be sincerely wrong. Here's some conversations I've had. I've had people tell me when I've shared Christ with them, I can't be forgiven. Why not? Because I've done too many things wrong. Folks, that's acting in ignorance. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for you even while you were a sinner. Another conversation. This one in Alabama. Talking to a young man. He was probably about 14 years old. He said, I can't be a Christian. I said, why not? He said, I'm afraid of snakes. I thought, you're afraid of snakes. I've heard about those kind of churches. <laughs> I didn't know this was one of them. 
And so I had to probe a little deeper. I was like, what do you mean you're afraid of snakes? How's that keeping you from Christ? The thing that kept this kid from responding to the invitation his entire life up to this point, wanted to be a Christian, but he said, I'm afraid of snakes. I said, explain that to me. He said, well, if I join the church, if I become a Christian, they're going to baptize me. And they baptize us over in this lake. And I've been over there enough to see there's snakes over there. I said, let's, let's deal with this first. Let's, let's teach you that you can ask Christ in your life today, and we'll find somewhere to baptize you that is snake-free. If we have to use a bathtub or a swimming pool, we can baptize you. It was like a light bulb went off for this guy. And I thought, you have up to this point acted in ignorance. You, ignorance has kept you from Christ. Another one, conversation that I had with somebody just last year, said basically, you know what, I, I'm okay. Filling in the blanks, he was saying, you know, I really don't need Jesus because I've never really done anything all that bad. I, I'm a pretty good guy. So acting in his ignorance, he believes that you're going to see God someday and it's going to kind of be a scale system. God's going to pile all your good deeds on one side of the scale, one side of the scale, and he's going to pile all your bad deeds on another. And just so your good deeds outweigh the bad, you're going to be okay. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth in the New Testament. Why? How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? One. And one sin separates you from God. God hates sin. That's why God had to send Jesus Christ. Because he hates sin, but he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Folks, I don't get into heaven based on the fact that I'm now a pastor and I preach and I've been to seminary and maybe my good deeds outweigh my bad. It'll never happen. You get into heaven based on faith in Jesus Christ who removes the sin. We'll talk more about that in a minute. I've had somebody tell me this. You know what? I think I'll wait. You're right. I need to ask Jesus into my life. I think I'll wait. I haven't sowed all my wild oats. <laughs> had a girl tell me that one time. I hadn't sowed all my wild oats. In fact, she said, my mother told me I hadn't sowed all my wild oats. I think your mother's encouraging you to go sow all your wild oats. Folks, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. How do we believe there's going to be another day? Respond when the Spirit prompts and calls you to Himself. Acting in ignorance. One last one. These aren't in any particular order, and I could have probably gone longer in the list. Another one is, well, I'm a member of the church. Talk to somebody about their faith in Christ, and their answer is not, I've asked Jesus into my life. You ask him the question, if you were to die tonight, and you were to face God, and he was to say, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer is going to be, I'm a member of the church. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you believe there's going to be church members that will miss Eternity with God. Folks, that's the sad truth. There's going to be people who sat in church their entire lives hearing the truth of the gospel and never responded and missed the kingdom because they acted in ignorance. Don't go through this week. Don't go through today acting in ignorance. In fact, Peter says, you're not only acting in ignorance, so are your rulers. So are the people you're looking to as your authority figure. They're acting in ignorance because God announced these things beforehand. Why are we without excuse? Why would the Jewish people be without excuse to recognize the Messiah? Because go and look at the pages of the Old Testament. They were told what was about to happen. For hundreds of years, the authors, God had spoken through these in the Old Testament to say, there's coming a Messiah. 
This Old Testament system of sacrifice, of offering a spotless lamb, lamb, is just a precursor. It's a foreshadowing of what will happen when Jesus comes. He will be the spotless lamb that will take away the sin of the world. In fact, it's all been fulfilled. God has fulfilled all that, and it's happened in recent days as he speaks to these people. Fifty-some-odd days ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross, and now Pentecost happened 50 days after that, and this happened a day or two after that. So recently, in your midst, it's all been fulfilled. In fact, the word means to cram full. It's like a net that was full of fish. Peter says, it's, it's finished. It's been, it's been fulfilled. It's happened. So here's what you need to do. Let me close with that. He says, first of all, repent. Isn't that a similar theme? Same thing back in chapter 2. What is Peter telling to do? Repent. It means to turn. It means to have a change of direction or a change of mind. You've been acting in ignorance up to this point, and by that you've been walking away from God. So what does Peter say? Repent and return. Come back to the God that's called you. Repent. Change your direction. And here's the promise that happens. Two things real quickly. First, your sins are wiped away. I love that. The word wiped away literally means to smear out or to obliterate. That's how God forgives. He forgives and he chooses to remember it no more. The things that you've done in your past that you may think are a mountain. They're what separates you from God. And yet when you come to Christ through faith in Him, you are forgiven. Those things are obliterated. Folks, you and I can't do that. We can't wipe our sins away and we can't even forgive like that. And yet that's how God forgives. And then the last thing He says is this, so that times of refreshing may come. I want you to get this picture of refreshing because here's what it means. It means to have your breath restored. It means that up to this point, you have been choking on your sin. The weight is so great, you can't even walk. You're breathless. And yet, when you're forgiven, the weight is lifted. He gives you back your breath. Same concept in Psalm 23, when it says, He restores my soul. That's what that means. He gives you back your breath. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads and just between us and God, let me ask you the question. Have you ever done that? See, I know it's possible to grow up in a church and hear it all and somehow think, well, isn't that enough? My parents were Christians. I've gone to church and I've done all these things. And yet that's exactly the excuse that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders would have used. Hey, we're the people of God. Abraham's our father. And yet Jesus told him on one occasion, you know what? God can raise up descendants to Abraham from these rocks. Don't place your faith in your lineage. Place your faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for your promise that as we turn from the direction we've been going away from you and turn to you, you forgive us from all our sin. You wipe it away. We have a clean slate. In fact, when we appear before you, it will be with the righteousness of Christ. Not on our merit, but on his. And then, Father, times of refreshing come. What a burden religion is. And yet, God, faith in Christ 
brings life. It gives us back our breath. Thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.